Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to episode 96 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. In this episode, I'm joined by Debsy Wicks, singer-songwriter, bass player, musician, and one-time Dolly mixture. The all-female post-punk pop band supported the jam from 1980 onwards and were the first signing to Paul Weller's Respond record label in 1981. We hear about her experiences in music at that time, the singles Bean Teen and Everything and More, both produced by Captain Sensible, by the way, and we bring it fully up to date with Sinetian and Birdie and stories from the past 30-plus years. This is going to be a delight. Let's get into it. Debsy Wicks, thanks for joining me. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. You look like I found you in the coat cupboard. Ah, oh. <laughs> this is my spot where I know this works. This is, <laughs> this is actually my coat and this is a dress. I bought them in a brief moment in lockdown when I was walking along and this shop was selling its stock really cheaply because they hadn't been open. So I just thought, I want that dress. I want that coat. And I bought them and I have to fit into them though. So, Oh, um, well, <laughs> lockdown hasn't been kind, has it, for us all? <laughs> Fair, yeah. <laughs> I can get them on, but they don't look as good as I want them to. Okay, so. fair enough, fair enough. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. <laughs> and as it's the Paul Weller fan podcast, we should kick off with when it was you first discovered the music of Paul Weller. When were you first aware of the man? When we went to see them play in, I suppose, uh, sort of really consciously in 1977. We went to see them play at Cambridge Corn Exchange. It was all in the city, you know. And then I think more and more conscious over the next couple of years, I think, really. In fact, I didn't see them play again until I went to the Marquee and they were doing a, what's it called? A secret gig. That's it. Oh, they, right, okay. They were called John's Boys. And I think it was sort of 1970. Oh, God. Summer. I don't know, autumn 79, something like that. It was absolutely stunning. I had 
I just couldn't believe it. I, I hadn't realised that they were so good. I think it was because you were close up. It was really powerful. It was amazing. Really good. Yeah. We've had so many people who talking about that time and how exciting it was to be young and suddenly having your music and something that connected with you as, you know, the bands that were on stage were the same age as you guys. Was that your connection with it as well? It- oh, it definitely was. I mean, I think, I think we like without realising it, I think we were all just getting really bored. You know, it's sort of like every Everything was sort of old and a bit dusty. And then all this stuff came out. I mean, because we lived in Cambridge, we were sort of a bit sort of behind, really. But then sort of 1977, we just sort of went to everything we could. And it was just fresh. It was brilliant. Yeah, it, it was our time, definitely. And, um, and, you know, you like the way people sounded. You like the way people looked. It was sharp. It was loud. It was everything. It was great. Yeah, really sort of inspiring times. So your own music aspirations. Where does this all come from? Because I know you come from a musical family yourself, don't you? But I'm guessing you hadn't initially ex- intended to be part of a, of, of a group, had you? It was weird because it was sort of, it's the sort of fantasy that I think lots of people have, um, but they have no idea sort of how to do it, especially for girls, because I didn't necessarily want to be a singer. I, I ended up just sort of wanting to be in a group, sort of like this sort of whatever it was or meant. And then um, earlier than 1977, I was sort of... Um, I was into sort of really sort of heavy music, sort of like, I like sort of Led Zeppelin things. And I wanted to be a guitarist so much and just sort of wig out or whatever they used to say. <laughs> just thought it'd be just the best feeling in the world to just go, <laughs> you know, all this sort of stuff. <laughs> take over, take over the place, just sort of making loads of noise. I couldn't play the guitar and I, and I didn't really know how to learn it and eventually persuaded somebody to teach me a few chords much more difficult than you think. I used to write stories and make believe we used to play that we were in a band or, you know, sort of just pretend. And then once everyone else started to be in a band, you sort of had a... a, a sort of chance to turn up and do backing vocals or just say, I want to do this. And so we just did. Yeah. Borrowed stuff. Did it. (laughs) And the thing is with Dolly Mixture, which is what we're going to focus on initially. If you think about the sound of punk, not every, and I'm trying to be kind to some of the bands and people around the time, not everybody could write a tune. Not everybody in in, in a punk band could play their instruments, but by goodness me, you lot could, couldn't you? Uh, uh, (laughs) I don't know how to answer that. We thought we could. <laughs> we sort of thought that our songs were good. We knew we didn't always play as well as we wanted to. But I thought, you know, people started to get really snobbish about playing after a while, but you weren't meant to be able to play when you first started, you know. So, of course, we were learning as we went. I thought we could do a tune, you know? So there. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, you definitely know how to write and play a melody. And when you listen back now to punk, and, and I've only ever been able to listen, you know, retrospectively, I was like, you know, two, three years old at the time, I guess. Um, oh. It's um, a missed it. Oh, damn it. I, I loved it. But yeah, you, you listen to some bands now and you're like, oh, yeah. Oof. Whereas I think your tunes have stood the test of time, I guess is the point. Well, that's very kind. That is very kind. I think also we were sort of just in the wake of punk. So we were sort of like, we wanted to do something that we thought was new. We went sort of far more poppy in a way because we were obsessed with the 60s and and also the early 70s as well. Well, because I was sort of a bit young and uh, younger in the early 70s, so I wasn't living a life at all and I and I wasn't sort of allowed to have all the clothes I wanted to. So I was also sort of trying to sort of uh, relive a bit of early 70s as well as the 60s just through clothes and stuff and glam rock and 60s, yeah. We wanted to sound new as well. And how quickly was it that you started to get airplay? 
and because people like John Peel start playing your, you know, giving you exposure on his radio show. I think he wrote about you in his column in Sounds magazine as well. But how quickly did it take off? We got a lot of attention sort of just in Cambridge, just because we were such a sort of novelty, I think. About a year after we started, I think John Peel sort of noticed us and then invited us to play with him. He did this roadshow thing. And so um, we went to... Norwich, I think, and and sort of played on his roadshow. He gave us half his uh, salary for the night. Wow. Um, which is really nice and, and sort of said, you know, drop some of the covers, you know, do more of your own stuff. He was such a gentleman and so nice and so kind. And of course, every, like in the papers, they sort of print little pictures of us with him sort of and saying he was sort of trying to seduce us or, you know, it's just all sort of joking about how he was going after the young girls, which I suppose was his sort of early 70s image might have been about. I don't know, because I, did, I didn't know John Peel till sort mm. of the yeah, late It's weird, 70s. isn't it? Because you think all those CJs around that time, it was very, I mean, it was like smashy and nicely literally like you know the harry enfield <laughs> character ripple whitehouse character that was the radio one djs wasn't it yeah. totally totally and it carried on for a long time yeah. <laughs> apart from sort of yeah when um yeah when john peel came on the radio yeah and he was something completely different so you did a radio one session then we did we did it was just sort of like the greatest moment in the world we went up to london in the van you know and and sort of did this day it was momentous absolutely stunned by this huge huge studio in, in Maida Vale and we were just there till midnight or so. It was wonderful, wonderful. And I think from that, people started to hear about us. And so we sort of then came to London to do our, it's sort of like having a London season that autumn where we did all, all the gigs and, and people started writing about us and stuff. Not all good. <laughs> right, well, we'll gloss over the ones that weren't so good. So it's at this point you get signed to a major label to Chrysalis. And I know it wasn't a great experience. So tell me about that. Um, no, no, it was it was a really disappointing experience because uh, we'd sort of wanted to go with a major label because we were obsessed with the idea of being pop stars, you know, sort of we thought that was the way to go. And we were knocked back by major labels all the time. And, and we should have sort of learned from that, really, that they're not going to let us have any control over anything. And they'll want other people to play on our records and want to choose what we do. But we eventually sort of made some sort of agreement that we would do a double A side. So one so song would be ours and the other one would be this song, Baby It's You. Which is a lovely song, but it's not mm. us. And it was around that time you also supported The Jam. The Jam came later. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, actually. It sort of seems like a month lasts a year, you mm. know, in those times. when It seemed to. So I always think they're different years. But in fact, it was probably, yeah, it was a few months later. The Nips were going to support them in uh, Leicester and they dropped out. So we were put on the bill instead and we supported them. And I think they had no interest in us before we arrived. Once we played, Paul Weller was standing on the side of the stage with his dad and, he, you know, they were just beaming at at us and it was ah it was amazing we were just flying you know it was every, everyone seemed to love us that night yeah it was great and then we did the um hammersmith odeon i think it was that december 1980 and that again was sort of like a sort of pinnacle of sort of supports really you know sort of five thousand people and everyone going oh you should have done another encore and blah 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 let's do this again sort of thing so the, the year ended very nicely brilliant yeah, and of course, at that point, so the jams are setting suns has been out. We're into sound effects and their audiences are getting bigger. So I imagine for Dolly Mixture, the exposure is fantastic. It just felt sort of 
enormous, you know, and that record was so brilliant. I loved sound effects. I thought it was absolutely wonderful. And to be sort of slightly felt that they were slightly taking you under their wing at first, you know, with his parents. I guess we, <laughs> maybe we wanted them as our parents. You know? <laughs> I think I think we all do. I think hearing the stories, I think we all want John and Anne as our parents, don't we? We wanted them to look after us, you know. They sort of did sort of say, look, you know, any time, give us a ring. Anne Weller would always said sort of, I'll, I'll do anything I can. And it was like going into sort of like, it's sort of like we'd been going on and on trying to get somewhere and suddenly it sort of momentarily was like a sort of safe house and uh, we'd got somewhere. Nothing ever stays like that, obviously, but mm. but it, it was a great sort of moment to sort of like feeling you, you were sort of on your way. A lot of people have talked about that shift from the Style Council to the Jam and audiences being more of a 50-50 split but when you talk about the jam days it was it was very blokey how did that feel as an an all-female band on stage supporting them was it intimidating or did you rise to the occasion i think it was less intimidating than being on stage with bad manners because people sort of like literally sig hailing in front of sig hailing hailing i've said that word for a very long time Um, (laughs) not since the days so they were literally doing that and spitting at us so in a way it was much less intimidating it's not bad manners fault at all they hated that part of their audiences and and would just would get so depressed but they they came along and they would spit as well so that is intimidating but then also we would just go well fuck you you know if you you don't like us we're going to annoy you now but we didn't have to to get that far with the jam audiences we didn't have to think fuck you we're going to annoy you depending on where it was they were generally really sort of sympathetic listeners surprisingly sure they could be a harsh audience now let's talk respond records so fairly soon after paul weller sets up respond his own record label and the idea being his, his version of motown essentially lots of different writers lots of different artists lots of collaboration across the label as well and you were the first signing dolly mixture the first signing and a few others at that time so the rim shots i think had one single the questions had quite a few singles an album and tracy who's been on the podcast as well tracy young's been on the podcast so tell me about respond how did that happen how did you get signed to the label and what's mr weller like as a record boss well we he got signed because he spoke to us at the Hammersmith Odeon before he had the label and was just saying, I wish I had my own label. There's so many good bands about sort of thing. But he just didn't feel he had the time. But I think they must have sort of set it up in the next few months. And his dad obviously sort of took over, really, I think, because it was mostly his dad we dealt with. But Paul did come along to a, a few meetings and there was sort of like one meeting where everyone came sort of like about the, the contract. And, and I don't think anyone had actually read it apart from us and we just say this is terrible and then it, well we're basically saying it's really shit and, and then he realised it was shit told his dad it was shit and we thought great good on him good bloke we were quite shy with him and I think he was quite shy with us because I think he got on with questions really well and I don't think he knew what to say to us very much but uh, and I think you know, the questions was like they were very sort of like, tight all together chatting uh, probably about records and clothes and boys hairstyles or something I don't, I don't know so he was obviously sympathetic to us doing what we wanted and doing our own sleeves which you know for better or worse that's what happened you know 
really. He came along to the beginning of the first recording that we did. Oh no, the second one. We did two singles. So he came along and he met Captain Sensible, who produced it with Paul Gray. They just stood around chatting. So that was, that was quite interesting to watch. And uh, yeah, and then sort of left. So we, so we didn't see him much after that, really. And it was quite neat because they packaged up some of those bands on Respond for live shows as well. Did you do any of those Respond package tours as well? Oh, we did. We did the, the first one. It was like 80, was it 82 and Responding? Um, so it was us and the questions and the rim shots did the, like the last three or something. So that was quite fun. And we took turns to headline. That's what I remember. I think we were quite annoying because we talked and we laughed a lot. I don't think the questions enjoyed that. Do you mean on stage or just generally? Just generally. I think oh. I think I, I think they might have found us a bit annoying. <laughs> I just got the the feeling that we were sort of like there was this presence in the van that wishes wishes we weren't there. <laughs> anyway, you know. I've I have met them since. It's all right. Well that's good to know. That is good to know. Um so let's talk about the songs. Let's talk about the singles. Two singles on the Respond record label. Bean in 1981 with Honky Honda and Ernie Ball on the B-side and then August 1982 a song called Everything and More B-side You and Me on the Seashore so let's talk about that let's talk about how those songs came about and the making of those and we should also talk about what happened next because what happened next is nuts but first of all let's talk about how those songs came about we had just got to know Captain Sensible um, from The Damned and he was desperate to produce us we said we wanted uh, him to produce us to you know to the Wellers and so that you know everyone said that's fine so we went into a place called Morgan Studios North London somewhere I think we went to visit Paul Weller like at the end of end of a tour he was playing um he was playing Portsmouth it was a bit like that they <laughs> yeah. were playing Portsmouth the jam the other two were involved <laughs> <laughs> um, at the Guild Hall so was, we went to talk about the sound of the record or something so, so we had this little very brief conversation sort of uh, and, and watched the gig and stuff he just said something like oh you know you could do a lot with percussion on that sort of that song and and then and then that was sort of it so then we went into the studio and basically captain brought paul gray along we just sort of laughed for about five days did the recording and sort of it was really good fun because captain was really into his guitar sounds and and we thought are we going to sound really good you know with not having a wimpy guitar sound because we were very sort of self-conscious about criticisms about us being sort of i suppose people might have thought we were a bit girly or wimpy or you know all that sort of thing all i can remember is just having a laugh really um the second time we'd actually recorded two songs for the second single first with Pete and Buffin who used to be in Mott the Hoople and the recordings weren't that weren't really very good and uh, and then Captain was free again so we went back and re-recorded it and I uh, I can't oh I know where we went we went to Conk which is um the Kinks studio and, uh, and we used Rachel played a, a Stratocaster that Right, uh, yeah, one of Ray Davis's strats on a, her guitar solo. Amazing, amazing. Oh, I loved the Kinks, the songs. Yeah, that was a brilliant thing. And and Captain's and Paul's work time basically was sort of like we would always stay really, really late 
because they liked working at night. And I don't know how they stayed up all night. Uh, we just had to try and keep up with them. I don't think much has changed, actually, from Paul, from what I've heard on this podcast so far. He's definitely a late-night worker. And in terms of these songs, were these songs that you'd had in the repertoire for a while? Were they songs you'd road-tested live? Or were they things that were written specifically to be respond singles? Oh, no, we played them. And I, I think it was just a sort of matter of um, sort of what's in the set, what's, you know, what what sounds like a single right what yeah what's going down well and and that kind of thing yeah yeah very much that was it really um unfortunately the second single sold worse than the first and i think that was the end of our deal let's talk about what happens next because i tease this a little bit but this is nuts really and and quite odd but bonkers so in 1982 captain sensible signs a solo deal with A&M Records. A&M Records, funny enough, funny enough, distributed some of the response stuff later on. But there's this massive, massive summer feel-good hit, a cover version of the South Pacific song Happy Talk, goes straight to number one from Captain Sensible. And you're there, the Dolly Mixtures, they're called, as his self-contained backing band. Well, we'd got quite pally with him, really. And he'd done a, a solo single with somebody from Crass, called Penny, right. wrote the lyrics and Captain wrote the music and he asked us to come and do the backing vocals. So that was our first experience. I think they were just sort of trying to think, who, who can we get to you know sing on this? So he sort of apparently sort of said it was obvious who to ask really. So they, we just got a call. Um, his manager sort of was quite flash. I think he was a sort of gig promoter and he used to bring over Barry Manilow and... Uh, Christopher, people like that. Captain was sort of like also recording the next Damned album whilst doing all this sort of uh, solo stuff. So it was, he was sort of like had this sort of split life. So uh, Andrew sort of Miller rang us up and darlings, you know, like, I'm going to send a car around for you. You know, we come down to, to uh, Surrey sort of thing. And so we, we were picked up in this Daimler and taken to a residential studio in somewhere in Surrey one afternoon, picked up some sweets from a a, a sweet shop on the way and, and somebody looked at us getting back in the car and said, you're dead chauffeur then, charming. <laughs> um, we got to the place and sang sang these vocals. I hadn't seen or heard South Pacific, actually. I, I know a few musicals, but I, I, I didn't know that one. I had no idea at the time why he'd chosen to do it. Just weird hearing all this sort of plinky-plonky um, synthesizer sort of keyboards and stuff. It was just completely different. And we met Tony Mansfield, you know, who'd been in new music and uh, we'd seen him on top of the pops but he was very charming he was lovely really sort of welcoming and it was very very strange and 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 we we had to sort of sleep in one of the sort of little bedrooms at the place and then got an early car back to London the next morning and then uh, it was uh, chosen as his uh, single and it was just sort of weird really and I don't know why we were called the Dolly Mixtures because uh, I think that's a mistake that happens all the time because it was never our, we never called ourselves the Dolly Mixtures. And you are in the video as well and there was obviously Top of the Pops which must have all been brilliant, really exciting but do you think it also maybe derailed your own project, derailed Dolly Mixture as a band? It's hard Hard to know, really. We realised what small fry we were. Even if we were like his backing singers or whatever, we was, you know, we often had the door shut in our faces, sort of trying to get in somewhere, uh, you know, because they just thought we were sort of fans trying mm. to get in after him or something. So we loved the excitement of it and the, and going on top of the pops and stuff. But there were times when we never knew whether whether we were in or we, whether we were out, you know, sort of not because of Captain, just just other people. <laughs> I love the fact. 
you call him Captain? Oh, that's <laughs> just who he was. Because <laughs> he must have had a real name, right? Captain wasn't his actual name. But it's, it's only his parents who called him, <laughs> as far as we were concerned. So, I mean, everybody we knew called him Captain. So, um, you know, that's where we are. <laughs> we used to get a noise or people say, oh, why don't you get a little band of your own together? Well, we actually have one. No, but you, you just realise that you're completely small fry and uh, wouldn't it be amazing if we were on top of the pops one day as ourselves sort of thing. That was still the dream. I don't know. You just, it's so bizarre seeing people who are actually have got there and the, who are successful. And you realise that they've got sort of proper clothes on and, and sort of everyone looks so fashionable. And even if they think they're a bit alternative, it's sort of 80s alternative as, as opposed to a bit dowdy or a bit weird like us. You know, there's a gloss about everybody where well, they've got really 80s hair. So 80s, the 80s. <laughs> it was very 80s, the 80s, you're right. And let's talk Dolly Mixture. So the end of Dolly Mixture, um, 1984, near the end of your run, there was this double album of demo tracks, which is brilliant. And actually it was re-released in 1995 as well. But aside from that, not really much, but there was a lot of material in those demo tracks. So, uh, you know, a lot of songs. We found it uh, such a tragedy, you know, sort of like personal tragedy that we hadn't ever been able to make an album. We put out our last single on an independent sort of distribution sort of service. And the guy there, I think, he was the one who suggested just putting all our demos together and just doing it as an album and plain white cover, really cheap. And at this time, um, Rachel and Captain had got together as well, sort of slowly over the years, they'd sort of got very close. And so by 84, they announced that sort of, that. well, one, we knew they were an item and two, they then announced that they were going to have a baby. And also we were getting sort of fucking tired of the whole sort of feeling that we weren't getting anywhere and we were still playing the same places and still just sort of not getting any more people in it was just getting a bit tiring and a bit exhausting trying to sort of g yourself up all the time and sort of like oh i've written a song today and it's just getting less and less sort of the lights going down sort yeah. of thing and then Rachel obviously was much more interested eventually in just having her baby so we did this double album and uh, I'm so pleased we did it because it's become this sort of bit of a little treasure really nowadays listening back to it um, it sounds like us because it's just demos it's also nice that you can stream it as well so not only is it on Spotify and I know, I know you get paid chuffle for that you guys but you can also shout at the smart speaker in the corner Alexa play and it will play Dolly Mixture and it will play all those songs which is amazing oh I didn't know you could do that (laughs) I didn't know you could actually speak to Spotify yeah absolutely you have to give it a go Um, and we should say that it's not as if your music career stopped to that point as well there's been lots of bands lots of projects since one with Dolly Mixture drummer Hester Smith called Coming Up Roses, which was on Billy Bragg's record label, playing with St Etienne a lot over the years as well, who are absolutely brilliant. And there's a lovely thing called Birdie as well, which people should dig into. I'll put all this in the show notes so people can have a listen as well, which is just lovely. So music is still a passion. It's still something that you've done post-Dolly Mixture as well for what nearly 40 years now. I know we are. <laughs> You're very kind to say, um, particularly about Birdie, because that's very special to me and my partner, Paul, the other half of Birdie. And we had a lovely band that you know we used to play with John and Will and now if we ever do play we have somebody called Patrick who's in a great band called Hanging Stars who everyone should check out because they're 
absolutely brilliant. They're more Americana than Paul Weller podcast, I have to say. But then we all love everything now, don't we? Oh yes, all tastes welcome here, all tastes welcome here. So for Birdie, there were a couple of albums. So we had Some Dusty in 1999, then Triple Echo in 2001. And just lovely, I'll put the, ne- the links in the show notes, like I say. It was great doing that. And, and we thought, you know, that this time it's because we'd both been in bands before me and Paul and, and, um, and we actually, this was the band that we, we really enjoyed being in, you know, it was because we were older and we were a bit happier and, and just enjoyed all, all the gigs. It was quite rewarding, you know, just sort of recording. We even got a record contract and, and bought a, a little car, you know, I mean, it was sort of, I just thought that I had one day where I thought I've got my baby, I've got my relationship, I've got my band, and I've got a record contract. You know, it was just sort of one of those wonderful days. And St. Etienne and I love doing. I, I still play with them live. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, so brilliant. And Sarah Cracknell as a singer, fantastic. But Bob and Pete and, uh, yeah, brilliant band, brilliant band. And another one that I feel, yeah, more people should know about, St. Etienne. Oh, yeah. And, and they've never sort of stopped. They just sort of keep having a, a new idea and then suddenly making an album. It's sort of like, in a way, I suppose it suits them. Maybe they're the way they work, you know, sort of like, and they, they've never split up and there's no sort of we are back and it's like family now the whole thing it sort of literally is because <laughs> almost because their manager is my partner Paul's brother and Sarah and I are like sister-in-laws now I'm telling all the family connections the wrong way around Paul's married to his brother Sarah and I are <laughs> I don't know we're like sisters <laughs> anyway blah 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 great enterprise yeah and it's not just the records live music's such a big thing for you as well have you been able to do much of that since lockdown I did like five dates with St Etienne last November so that was really exciting and it was I loved it it was just brilliant I think when once you do start playing live again that's when you realise what you've missed and I realise it with Birdie as well because I could keep thinking if we ever think, should we play? And then it makes me nervous and I think, oh, my voice might go or something like that. And then if we actually ever do it, it's the most brilliant experience because you, you're using all your old, I don't know, everything that is part of you and you're sort of brushing it up again, you know. Yeah. it's <laughs> Dusting it off, yeah. Yeah. It's, um... Well, it's also a gift and not everybody can do this, right? So the fact that you can, get out there, get out there and get on with it. <laughs> I quite like doing St. Etienne because it's like a slightly different persona. I, I don't have so much responsibility. It's, sort of, it's a bit more clubby for me. You know? And talking to Paul Weller, have there been any connections with Mr. Weller since, in the in the years since Dolly Mixture? No, no. <laughs> Bugger all since. Bugger all. <laughs> No, we, we've never met. We've never met again. I saw him across the room once, I think, at a heavenly social thing way back in the 90s. Um, and I could hear people sort of muttering around, oh, look, this Paul Weller, you know, sort of thing. And I thought, oh. <laughs> um, and we went to his launch at Somerset House of their book, The Jam, sort of yes. growing up the jam book, which we had a tiny bit in. And we met his mum again and we saw him and we just didn't have a chance to meet because he's always surrounded by people. I think it would, might be quite jolly now to say hello, you know, because I think we, we're all sort of older and wiser mm. and less shy. But funnily enough, my 
partner, Paul, and his brother have written a book about Rickenbacker's beautifully photographed and, and everything. And they photographed all his guitars. So they know him. We've never met again. Hey, look, this has been so lovely chatting with you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I've really enjoyed every second of it. Before you go, there are two questions I ask my guests. Um, so two final questions. Uh, first one, you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be The Jam, The Style Council or Solo. What are you going to go with? Oh, I think I... Oh. Oh, God, that's really tricky. You didn't prepare me for this, man. <laughs> Tell everybody. I'd have to go for something off um, sound effects, I think. Oh, God. Although there was something amazing on that co- live concert that was on television the other day. I think I know what I'd go for. I know it's a bit random, uh, as they say. Uh, I think I'll go for Pretty Green because it was the first song I heard from the album and it was live. And I just thought, what the, what the fuck has he written now? Okay, I'll go for that one. <laughs> a fine choice, a fine choice. Pretty green from the jam, love it. And, and the song he still plays live on occasion these days as well. In fact, I think on the most recent tour playing that one too. So this has been so great. Look, final question. Your um, purpose of this podcast is not least to talk to lovely people like yourself with these connections to Paul and find out about their career and dig into their connections and all that as well. But it's really for me to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. If it happens... What should I ask him? Oh, my God. Well, don't ask him about Dolly Mixture for a start. That's a a don't. Don't. What should you ask him? (laughs) What should you ask him? Oh, God, this is another tricky one, isn't it? I think something like, what were you like as a little boy? It'd be really interesting to know what he was actually like sort of when he was about five or six or seven. His modus operandi, whether he was a beetling about or thoughtful or there you go. Oh, nice. I like that. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, hey, look, this has been so lovely, Debsy. I've really enjoyed chatting with you. Thanks for joining me. Oh, well, I appreciate being asked. I really do. I'm, I'm flattered and honoured. Thank you so much. What a joy. My thanks once again to Debsy Wicks for joining me on the podcast. Check out my show notes for more information. There's a full playlist of songs from Debsy's back catalogue as well. All on my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Whilst you're there, you can buy me a virtual coffee or gift yourself or a friend some of our new exclusive official merchandise. T-shirts, sweatshirts, phone covers and more. Get on the website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. You'll also find details there of some very special live podcasts we have coming up soon. In Halifax on the 3rd of July, the same day that Paul Weller plays the city, we'll have a bunch of live events, all part of Bradford Literature Festival. Plus, just announced details of the big exhibition this summer in Brighton, This Is The Modern World. It's the ultimate exhibition of previously unseen The Jam and the Style Council memorabilia, curated by Nikki Weller. I'll be hosting The Jam Q&A with Rick Buckler, Wednesday, August the 10th, tickets on sale right now and this will be very special too Thursday August 25th the Style Council Q&A featuring Mick Talbot and Steve White plus unseen footage from the Long Hot Summers documentary as well a very very special evening in conversation with me get your tickets now full details on the website paulwellerfanpodcast.com now in the next episode it's always lovely to hear from the fans Shane Jusen, big super fan On the next podcast, a very, very special episode. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and do share on social media if you've enjoyed as well. Get in touch on Twitter at WellerFanPod or on Instagram and Facebook. You'll find me. Just search Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.